I was really, and still, and, you know, I've had painkiller issues. I had them for 15 years that I've, you know, sort of battled through, but I always had social anxiety. And I think a lot of the reason I took the painkillers was because of that. I felt nicer. I felt more charming. I didn't feel like such an asshole when people would come up to me and want to talk about basketball. I'm Perry Rogers, and I'm a brand specialist. I'm Ed Borgato, and I'm an investor. And our conversations are about the tension between the head and the heart in the way people make decisions and their point of view on important issues. This is The Head and the Heart. Welcome, everyone, to The Head and the Heart. This is Perry Rogers. And this is Ed Borgato. Rex Chapman is an American former professional basketball player and social media influencer. Chapman was a high school phenom in Kentucky, winning numerous awards for his play. In two seasons at the University of Kentucky, he won further awards and scored more than 1,000 points. Chapman was the first draft pick of the expansion Charlotte Hornets and played on four NBA teams over a 12-year career. He averaged 14.6 points per game and appeared in two slam dunk competitions. Injuries sustained on NBA courts led Chapman to an addiction to opioids. Following an arrest for shoplifting, he entered drug rehab for the third time and was able to overcome his addiction. After retiring, Chapman also held several jobs with NBA teams, culminating in being vice president of player personnel with the Denver Nuggets. He currently serves as a broadcaster for the University of Kentucky basketball games. Chapman, to his surprise, became popular on Twitter by tweeting videos frequently lighthearted or inspiring his followers. He also runs a podcast called The Rex Chapman Show, which debuted on basketballnews.com on March 16th, 2021, with friend and actor Josh Hopkins. So um, I'm going to actually throw this over to Ed to start because, mm-hmm. um, and I, I think that the kind of the story that we were just talking about is the right place to start. Yeah, well, you know, I was always curious as to, you know, I've, I've been acquainted with or friends with a few professional athletes, and I always like to ask the question, when did you know you were good? Like, what, what is that? You know, when is that point where you turn the corner and you're a kid and you're yeah. just like, shit, man, I'm, I'm just be- I'm just beating everybody, you know, and you realize, wow, this could really take me someplace. But is there a moment that happened for you? Uh, you know, going back, I can think of stepping stones, sort of, you know, I just I can remember I wanted nothing more in the world as a little kid than to just play varsity basketball. <laughs> Right. My my dad coached high school basketball and the dream was to play for the, the Apollo Eagles. And so I remember making the team barely as a freshman and then getting in a game, a real game against, you know, schools I've been watching play for years and making a shot and going, whoa, that, re- that really just happened, mm-hmm. you know, in my mind and then building from there. <clears throat> And that breeds confidence, of course. But I was so I was probably ninth grade then. But my athleticism started to come through, and I started to grow. I was small. I was probably five, seven, or eight as a freshman in high school. And then, along with my growth spurt, I grew over one summer from about five eight to six three in a matter of three or four months. Uh, and then my athleticism started coming together, and about age 16 I I realized I was I was better than all the guys in my grade in my own grade and I'd been kind of that way for a while but once I became athletic and could play over the top it kind of changed things for me and then you know of course I just wanted to play college ball I I, my dad had me perfectly wired to believe that you know the the players on the college team are way better than you man uh they're they want you for what they think you can be. So I was very humble and hungry going into college. Once I had success in college um, and then made, I made the uh, USA team after my freshman year at, at that point, I really thought, okay, because everybody else on the whole USA team were juniors and seniors. And I was coming out of my freshman year. Those guys were going into the draft, David Robinson, uh, a year later, Danny Manning and, um, just a whole slew of guys and I was starting on the team. Right. So I, it was kind of difficult to ju- juggle 
Um, cause I never really dreamed of playing in the NBA. I just wanted to play in college and make sure my parents didn't have to pay for a scholarship. So that's a right. long way of getting to the answer, but there you go. But, but in college, when you, you could see that you could compete, then you started thinking to yourself, man, could I really play professional ball? Yeah. Uh, in fact, we, it was my freshman year and we played at Indiana, um, so been in like 1986. So I'm just in school. It was four. We had four or five games we had played, but we played at Indiana in assembly hall and they were really good. In fact, they ended up winning it that year somehow, but uh, winning the whole thing, but they had Steve Alford. They had Steve Alford and uh, Keith Smart and Dean Garrett, a team that won it all that year. They beat us in overtime in their place. And you know, it was only my fourth or fifth college game. I had 25 or so, and Steve had similar numbers offered. And I had been watching Steve play for years, uh, you know, uh, growing up where I did. They're just really across the river in Bloomington. Yeah. And so he's he was a legend, and I really loved watching him play. But when I played against him, I realized he was small, smaller than I was. And and he was not he wasn't. He wasn't as athletic. And at that point, because they were talking about him being a first round pick and playing in the NBA, I thought, man, if he can do that, I I think I can do that at some point. You you like the way you match up against him. You're thinking, why can't I go? And I was a freshman and he was a senior. So I I just, um, you know, little things like that help, help me, I guess, gain confidence that all the work I was putting in was paying off. You can pinpoint it to that moment, kind of. That, yeah. that was the realization of, wait a second, there's a whole other life for me here. Right. That, that, yeah, if I, you know, honestly, I didn't, I, I didn't know you could make a lot of money playing basketball and really growing up when I, when I grew up in the seventies, guys weren't making a lot of money playing NBA basketball. And that, so that all kind of just came at, at the right time. The other thing that coincidentally happened, I, I played high school ball and no three pointer. But my and but my very first year of college ball, they put the three pointer in and I just happened to be able to shoot from behind it. Uh, So that was just sort of weird, you know, luck there. (laughs) Let me ask you this. I'm interested in that moment for you. But do you think if it weren't for the fact you used the phrase earlier that you were hungry and humble? And I mentioned that we represented Kyrie from the time he came out until 2019. And on the bottom of his shoes, his first shoe, he had an H and H because his dad said, be hungry and humble. And he used the same phrase. And he talked a lot about how when he was in high school, he wasn't the guy. He didn't become the guy until late, late, late in high school. Was embarrassed in some games early in his high school career. Mm -hmm. Do you think that the fact that you were hungry and humble, that you weren't the guy, um, that that's what allowed you to get there. Do you think that you need to have a bit of a, a chip on your shoulder and to see yourself as a bit of an underdog in order to realize your full potential, no matter who you are? No question. And I go back to my dad. Um, you know, one thing he said from the time I was young, you know, he I'd come home, ask him how I did. And he'd tell me exactly. And usually not in the greatest terms. And so uh, he said, Hey, listen, son, you know, I've, I've still never seen a great player that can't take an ass chewing. And so that kind of sticks with me. And, and the reason I say it, I, I, I'm here in Lexington, Kentucky, and I spend a lot of time over at the university. And we, we have a lot of young kids that play here now, one and done type players. When I was playing, when Shaq was playing, when all the old timers were playing, you had four year guys that were playing in college. And so when I came to the university of Kentucky, I had, six other McDonald's All-Americans on the team who were juniors and seniors. I just, I really hoped, I, A, I only weighed about 160 pounds. I, I hoped they wouldn't redshirt me. And then uh, really, I just hoped to maybe come off the bench and carve out 10 or 20 minutes as a freshman. That was, you know, I couldn't see beyond that because my father had, you know, and there were times I would come home, he coached Division Two ball, and I played against those guys in the summertime. There were times he would come home and tell me, you can't play for me here at Kentucky Westland. You, wow. you think you're going to go? Yeah. So I was perfectly sorted. And I believed him. 
because they were good players on a good D2 team. I was a kid. So right, but it sounds I, like he did you a favor because you didn't go in there thinking you were better. Yeah, that's kind of a – yes. He didn't always uh, – he and I – he's still living. He and I have a really good relationship. Uh, now it's getting better all the time. But he was difficult, man. He was. It was difficult to live up to what his expectations were. He didn't pressure me to play. He just said, look, if you're going to play, you better do it as well as you can do it. Don't just – don't just fuck around. Right. So, um, but yes, basketball wise, he, he really did. The kids come in now that are supposed to be one and done kids. And immediately before they've ever had a practice, know they're going to start pretty much. And that they're likely going to be the best player on the team. I can't imagine. I can't imagine coming in with that sort of uh, the keys to the kingdom, really, you know, now when you, yeah, w- when you get, to the nba you're what 20 years old mm-hmm. okay just turned 20 i think so, i think i was the youngest player and kareem was the oldest at 41 okay so that's kind of what i want to ask you about so kareem's in the league and that kind of brings me to my question you know what's it like to be 20 years old and now you're putting on a professional nba jersey you're playing with guys a lot older than yourself you're playing with guys you've been watching on tv you know mm-hmm. does an athlete at that level because let's just I mean, you're one of 500 players, one of the best Mm -hmm. in the world at a thing, which is remarkable to be there. But does a young player like that feel like, do you ever feel imposter syndrome? Like, do I really belong here? Oh, yeah. There were several moments, um, you know, stepping on the floor with Kareem, stepping on the floor with Larry Bird and and those teams, those great, they were still Showtime. They were still the, you know, those Celtics teams. Um. I I had those moments. I was fortunate, I think, in that I was really concentrating on what I was doing in college and trying to become what we were. I was trying to win a title. And that was really when someone asked me after my last college game as a sophomore, are you going to go pro? I was like, what are you talking about? Am I going (laughs) to what? And so it all sort of happened quickly. And to go back after the Indiana game in college, we played Louisville a week or two later and I had a really good game. And coming into the locker room from the press room after the game, our our PR guy stopped me and said, hey, champ wants to talk to you. And I said, who? And I went around the corner and Muhammad Ali had been at the game. I didn't know it. He introduces me to Muhammad Ali, who wants to meet me. And I don't even remember anything else that happened. So there were all these moments in there. And then, you know, just from the time I graduated high school to two full calendar years later, I was already in the NBA. I only spent like 18 months on UK's campus. And so I felt like I didn't really have a real normal college experience, but felt like I was sort of prepared to go. I was prepared physically to go play in the NBA, but in no way, shape or form was I emotionally ready. I was scared. I went up to my first, I had my first apartment in Phoenix or in uh, Charlotte and Del Curry was my, next door neighbor and Stefan was born that year. He's one of my best friends. Stefan's my little buddy. Um, but the first night in my apartment by myself, I'm 20. I held out for a week for 25 grand more. And, uh, um, I turned the TV off to go to bed that night. I thought, uh, 10, 11 o'clock first NBA practice tomorrow, better get some sleep. I turned to go up the steps, brand new place, looked upstairs. It was dark. And I came back down, I stepped back down, went in the TV room, turned on the TV and slept with the TV on. Scared of the dark, scared of the dark. And I'm going to go to my first NBA practice. I did. It went fine. I came back the next night, decided I better get over this and slept upstairs. But think about that. I mean, that's how emotionally immature that I was. Um, And so, yeah, also right away, the league at our first, very first practice came and told uh, our team, hey, guys, listen, you guys have a minor in the locker room, so you guys can't have beer in the locker room this year. <laughs> you can imagine how that went over. So the whole year I had to leave our locker room after the game and go to the opposing locker room with a big garbage bag full of ice and stock it with beer to bring it on the bus and bring it on the plane to all the veterans. <laughs> that was your reward for that. Yeah, so, Thanks, you know, I – 
exactly. So yes, I did. I felt, and all of my, many of my teammates, they, they had kids, they had wives. Yeah. It, it was really, really an odd kind of existence. And yeah, there were plenty of times I felt like an imposter because I, and I wasn't as good as they were. Like I was a shooting guard who was athletic, but I couldn't really shoot. Not yet. Not like they could, uh, you know, I hadn't had enough reps. So it was just constant trying to keep up. You know, Rex, but I've never talked about my, my job on this podcast, but I represented Andre Agassi for pretty much his entire career from the time I was in law school until he retired. But before that, we were just childhood best friends. And he went to the National Indoors. Uh, he was a, a really good junior player, but he wasn't a great junior player. And he called me and he just played his quarterfinal match. And uh, I don't know if this was 85 or 86. I, tr I truly don't remember. But it was uh, November. And he, I think he did it in Chicago. He played his quarterfinal match. And he said, yeah, I, I don't really know what's happened. I'm like, good. So like, yeah, no, I know, I know you're good. He goes, no, Perry, like this was weird today. I said, what are you saying? He goes, no, like I'm, I'm better than these players. And he, Andre wasn't the type that would say yeah. that. He wasn't yeah. the, the guy that would come in and, you, you know, he wasn't Larry Bird saying, which one of y'all is playing for second. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> and um, he said, I said, well, what was your score? He said, no, like it was six Oh six Oh. And I don't know what happened. And I thought a lot about two years after that, or three years after that, depending on what year it was, Andre's ranked third in the world in tennis. Wow. And so it's a little bit like your journey, this two year yeah. period where you go from, I hope to make the team at Kentucky and play some, I'll come off the bench right. to I'm in the NBA. And I just think that that kind of, that system that kind of comes on you, that wave of, yeah. of stuff has got to be really difficult to absorb. Yeah, it is. And I think more than anything, it's the celebrity of it. And for me, I, I was really, and still, and, you know, I've had uh, painkiller issues. I had them for 15 years that I've, you know, sort of battled through, but I always had social anxiety. And I think a lot of the reason I took the painkillers was because of that. I would, I felt more, I felt nicer. I felt um, more uh, charming. I, I felt, I felt, I didn't feel like such an asshole when people would come up to me and want to talk about basketball. You know, it was kind of be careful what you wish for. I was, I was a gym rat. I spent every waking hour uh, work doing push-ups and whatever it was to try to get better. And then all of a sudden, it's, it starts coming together. And I, I can remember being in the mall in high school and people coming up for autographs all of a sudden overnight one day. Yeah. And then some of them would be kids from the opposing schools playing a trick. They I'd sign it. And then they'd rip it up right in front of my face. So funny too. I get it. Ha ha. Mm -hmm. But it's also not in that yeah, moment. You're a kid. And you're, you're trying a kid, a kid. to, right. yeah, you, you know, you might've had a girl there that you were, you know, kind of crushing on or whatever. And right. you, you feel crushed in that moment. So that was, that was really kind of difficult. Um, you know, yeah, living in a small state and, and being recognized before I ever, you know, really did anything. Um, yeah. So that, yeah, that part of it was. Fame, fame is an awkward thing, especially when you feel like you haven't really from your own perspective achieved right. enough to deserve it. And people are recognizing you where, where do you know, or have you thought about, you know, where that social anxiety came from and had you felt it <sighs> all through your NBA career? I, I, I've always been pretty uncomfortable around people that I don't know. Um, initially, I think because I assume they know me and, or know of me. And, you know, there are days that you feel like dealing with it. And there are days you feel like just going to the mall with your kids and not, yeah. you know, you know, or going to out to eat and somebody not coming up. Right. I kind of fought that and battled it for years. Unlike Shaq, unlike my guy here in, in Kentucky, Kenny Walker, I've learned so much. Unlike Charles, they accepted long ago that that's just part and parcel and they're the best at it. I'm not the best at it. Yeah. I feel like a phony. 
<laughs> when I try to go over the top and say, Hey, how are you? You know, it, that's just not me, but those guys do that. And I'm envious of that. I really am. Have you um, gotten better at it? I've gotten better. Yes. I've gotten, well, especially the last, you know, since being off of the pain meds for five or six years now. Uh, yeah, I'm grateful for it. Um, it's, you know, to be 50 something and sort of be semi relevant still is, it's pretty cool. Yeah. You know, when we meet people, usually most people start out on an even footing. Oh, mm-hmm. nice to meet you. Oh, nice to meet you. What do you do? Right. How, how are you? Where are you from? Yeah. And it's like, you know, I don't know anything about that person. They don't know anything about me and you're really on equal footing. And I, I, I really, even though I haven't experienced what you've experienced, I, I feel like I could relate on some level to how uncomfortable that would be when you meet someone and they know all about you or they think they know all about you because they know a piece of you. Yeah. And it reminds me of something Al Pacino. I heard Al Pacino say this in an interview once when he was asked about fame. And he said, you know, the, the, the really weird thing about fame is that after enough time, you stop having to earn new relationships yeah. because people just simply want to get to know you or, or they're, they're, they're forgiving of something you might say, or they tolerate a certain much more from you because you're a famous person. And you, mm-hmm. and he said, you have to be careful because you can fall into this. It's not a healthy way to live. Actually. We don't have to yeah. own your relationships. Yeah. And such a great point. I'd, I'd never really, really thought about it like that, but it's, it is, it's, it's an odd existence to, you know, walk out of your house. I, I, I just live in a little neighborhood. I'm out walking the dog the other day and some person just, came by and said, Hey, you're going to run for office ever. And I'm like, Hey, no, I'm not. But B, I mean, also I had on a hat. How do you, how did you even know it was me? Uh, wasn't it's, it's an odd existence being recognized and, you know, again, you work for it. You, you don't, you don't realize that that's going to, that's part of it, that you're going to have to, you got to do the media and you got to, the other part that was really um, awkward for me as a young player in the NBA. And I didn't really understand the business. I didn't understand the role of the role of the, uh, they have to be there and all of that stuff. Um, The other thing I didn't take the time to do that, that I did once I was traded you know, when I went there, I was 1920 in Charlotte and I took zero time to get to know anybody else. Like I knew our PR person's name, but not the the next PR person's name under him. Mm -hmm. I didn't know the, most of the people in the office's name, you know, I, I, Hey, how you doing? It never dawned on me that no, that's what grownups do, man. You get to know people. You ask them where they're from, what they do. You try to remember who they are. And so you can develop a real, you know, relationship with them. You're going to see them every day. And so it, it, it was, it takes some growing up and I, I feel fortunate. I, I really do that. I was good enough to get traded and have a long career. Yeah. Many times if I had gotten hurt during those first few years or sucked, during those first few years, you're out of the league and you've built no relationships. You've met nobody and you've really done nothing to further yourself. And that, that would be super sad to me. Did you, did, were, were you throughout your NBA career, were you always that gym rat that you talked about? Did you just yeah. love the game? Was it something I, that you just enjoyed? Mm-hmm. I love playing. I loved competing and playing against whoever it was. It gave me uh, great joy um, just going down and if nothing else, just taking, taking out your aggression for two hours, running into people, sweaty, um, whatever's going on at home, you might work it out there. The thing I didn't realize was that that type of stuff is really addictive. You know, getting 10 points in 40 seconds and making three threes and making the other coach burn a timeout. He, he's been thinking it didn't want to burn that that feels really good as a, as a person, you know, just that adrenaline, you hear the crowd roar, all that. What you don't realize is you're going to fucking miss that the second you stop playing. Mm -hmm. 
And I didn't really realize that's what I was doing. I didn't realize I was addicted to all of that stuff and all of that. And immediately just started substituting, you know, that void with pain medicine right? and trying to fill that void. And um, because you're going to miss that, you're going to miss your teammates. You're going to miss just the camaraderie and all of that. And I really didn't realize how much I would grieve, you know, retirement, you know, having to retire. So that was a, that was a thing. So you, you, it's if, confusing. Yeah. If you could step into, scary. if you could step into a time machine and go back and give your 20 year old self, let's say 21, let's give you a full year in the league first. Okay. Mm-hmm. And you get to go back and you get to spend 10 minutes total the time machine has, it has mm-hmm. a, a clock on it. You got to get back 10 minutes total with yourself. Would the advice be, find your relationships, dig in now with the advice, be respect that this is, this is going to be addicting. There's going to be something here. What would you say to yourself after you've been in the league for a full year? I had a huge, huge horse playing gambling issue forever. Um, Could read a racing form before I could read a newspaper. And I would impress upon my younger self to not, fucking gamble all the time and then to take your education more seriously to if i'd have known i i would have taken finance stuff i would have taken business classes um i did an interview the other day with jamal mashburn and he's one of the more fascinating people you'll ever meet you should have him on this show Tell, tell his story, if you don't mind, for our listeners. Jamal, Jamal is from the Bronx. Uh, his parents divorced when he was about 10. He was raised by his mom. She did a, on, an unbelievable job. He came to the Kentucky, really sight unseen, played here for three years, kind of turned the program around, and then went off to the NBA. But since then, I mean, Jamal was always – he was frugal. He knew what he was doing with his money. He's an investor now, and he owns, I don't know, 80 different franchises, uh, car dealerships. He's got it going on. And uh, listening to him talk, it really made me, again, realize how lazy that I was and how uh, one track, I had a one-track mind, play basketball and that's it. Like, I'm going to fucking play forever. I mean, no, I was done at 32 and then like, what the hell am I going to do now? Um, so yeah, I, I would, I would impress upon my younger self to, um, you know, take every time someone asks you, what are you going to do when the NBA is giving you all these tools, you know, every year you want to go and intern here, you want to go and do this and learn this over the summer. I would do all of that. Mm-hmm. I would do all of that instead of spending time at the casino or the track or whatever I would have been preparing better so i didn't have to go go through some of what i've gone through i think Uh, you know here's what i would say um you know i i can't speak to your experience but i can speak to the experience having watched andre go through it you know you're just so young so much success hits you so quickly and i just think that it's impossible it's impossible for anyone to be fully informed at that age of what risks uh, they they are facing and what retirement is going to look like. I just think yeah. that that's impossible to know. And so um, I, I would say, I don't, I don't, I can't imagine you being lazy given that you did something that very few people did. It's just not having the information. It would just, yeah, yeah it would just be you giving yourself that information because I got to believe that if you gave yourself that information uh, you would run with it. I hope so. I, I do know that I've, I had so many people. And when I say that financial advisors that were like, bro, you got to stop, you got to stop what you're doing. You're not going to have any money. And I'd be like, eh, I'll sign another contract like that stupid. So, um, yeah, I, I would hope so. I was pretty hard headed and, um, I don't know. I think that at some point, you know, I started, I think I went from a place of being very hungry and, you know, as a freshman in high school, as a freshman in college to a place two or three years later, where I think I just had it on cruise control for a a couple of years, trying, you know, wasn't, 
I was playing all the time, but I'm not sure I was getting any better. And uh, I, I'd lost some of that hunger and had to find that again. I got traded, found it again, and and was lucky to to go on from there. But yeah, I, I think I, I had some uh, complacency um, issues, and so yeah, a little lazy. I mean, I imagine it's pretty common in all leagues. I mean, it's very hard. I think to penetrate a 27 year old who's on the top of the world and make him believe that in 10 years, he's just not going to be, yeah. you know, one of the greatest in the world anymore. <laughs> at a I thing. Know. You know, it's very hard to penetrate that. It must've been scary. What, who were your mentors? Growing up uh, well, in, or in and, the league and in the league, maybe yeah. your professional time guys that I really, um, Del Curry really, he, he really put me, you know, under his wing right away. We were best of buddies and we played the same position. And so that was kind of, kind of strange, but Dell is somebody I really look up to, you know, I know he's only three or four years older, but uh, another is, is Danny Ainge. Danny Ainge uh, has been a huge um, source of, just information for me and, and a guy that I, he's a really good person. Um, and we're, we're very close. Uh, another that I, I gain, he's younger than I am, but I, I really do from the time I met him, you know, probably, gosh, probably 25 years ago. Um, he seemed just different in the mind. His brain was different. And that's Steve Nash. And, Stevie Nash, you know, just from a very young age, we became fast friends. Uh, when he was in Phoenix, I had signed there as a free agent and the Suns drafted him. So I was with Steve for a couple of years. He wasn't really even playing. Uh, he was playing behind KJ and Jason Kidd and myself, and he didn't get on the court very much. But our lockers were next to one another. Our, we sat on the plane next to one another. And I learned so much from that dude. Uh, I really, I really did. And I, and I'm you don't mind going, like, like what, yeah. what were the things that you feel like you learned from him in those conversations? You know, I think because I was somebody who was really caught up from the, a young age and, you know, how did, how did we play? How did I play and live and die with the stat sheet? And, you know, Steve was somebody who could brush off, you know, a bad game, get in the gym, work at it. Um, he wasn't, he had a better emotional understanding. You know, I could get wildly emotional. I quit my high school team. I'd already committed to Kentucky. I mean, I came home and my dad said, you did what? I said, I quit. I'm not playing anymore. He goes, okay. And our coach lived next door. He made me go over there and apologize to him right away. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so I just learned, you know, that, that, that I just, he was, he's fascinating dude. And the other thing that I learned was he, you know, he had other interests and I think I looked at that kind of as a weakness in people for a lot of my life. Like what spend more time doing what you're doing, you know, what you do really well. And I didn't really have other interests and through him over the years, I think I've, I've, I've just learned so much and I, I've gotten to know his family, his dad and his mom, and they're just fantastic people. I've had good interactions with Steve. Uh, yeah. he's, he is uh, really smart, really smart and very creative uh, mm-hmm. in, in his thinking. And I think that's what, that's the way he played the game yeah. was he could see something on the court that a lot of people couldn't. Yeah. And, and he really is too. He's the ultimate teammate and leader. And uh, I know that, that's really part of what intrigued him to the Nets job is because he knows he knew it would be a circus. It's going to be a circus. You get, you know, you're in New York to begin with, but then you've got these personalities. He's so good at team building type stuff and, and camaraderie and uh, you know, letting things go that, you know, other people might just go crazy about giving his, you know, he, he really was constantly, whether he was playing or not, he's the, if he's over on the bench, there's a timeout. 
he's the first guy out giving you fives as you're walking off the court. He ha- might not have even played in three games, you know, and he was the same way when he was playing and winning MVPs. He's dapping everybody up, patting them on the butt. Make He had an unbelievable knack for knowing, all right, Sean Marion hasn't touched it in two trips. I need to get him a touch. Oh, let me throw it down to Amari. Oh, Quentin Richardson. I need to give him some love. Joe Johnson, fine. He he just was able to do that uh, somehow, and that's a gift, I think, because he, he's got a special brain. Yeah, he really does. You know, you, you get to the end of your career, and you get injured. And, um, you know, I think that I think every great story um, comes out of a difficulty that that um, that look, makes us feel like we're at the end of our rope. And I think what amazes me about you, and we're going to get to your Twitter feed, which I think is the best Twitter feed there is. But but you you get to the end of your career and you get injured, and it, it takes you into a road. Uh, toward opioids and I'm just wondering what that process was like and and what you learned about how you come out of something like that uh it it was a long lesson to learn uh I'll back up a little bit I did I had seven surgeries my last three years doctor gave me oxycontin for the an appendicitis and in two days I felt like I was in love fast forward a year and a half and Danny Ainge had come to me and said, hey, man, you're messing up. You've got to go away. You've got to, you, you got a drug problem. How did and, he see that? He could just see. Anybody that was around me that knew me could see it. I, I was numb. You know, my eyes were dull, um, not laughing, not really enjoying life, just kind of, but it, it, it my decisions had become bad. You know, I've got a wife at home, four kids uh, under 10. Um, and, and so I did, but at that time I was taking 40, some 40 Vicodin a day and about 10 Oxycontin in wow. a single day. And I was just eating them. I would, fortunately I didn't drink uh, I'd for sure be dead, but I was just taking them and chewing them and eating them just to get them in my bloodstream uh, quicker. Um, so I was in a really bad place. I went to rehab. I got out of there, you know, I, I got off of the Oxycontin. I never went back on the Oxycontin. That's just, that was just a monster. But within six months I had another surgery, uh, you know, I probably should have told them, Hey, don't give me any pain medicine, but I didn't. And they gave, gave it to me and I loved it again right away. And so for about 14 years, I, I was, had three rehab stints. And, uh, then, um, I, I, in 2014, it finally took, I guess, maybe cause I was, at, maybe I, cause I was at the bottom. I didn't embarrass myself and my kids and everybody. Uh, and I realized that, you know, man, you're doing this for a reason, you know, what is it? And it, but it took me getting clean and off the drugs before I could start doing the therapy do, and doing the hard work with, you know, why, like, what are you, who are you? What do you want to do? What do you like? What do you not like? I didn't know any of that stuff. You know, I started remembering, Oh shit, I like music. I like playing golf. You know, there are things that I like besides drugs <laughs> and it was sort of just relearning how to live. Um, you know, uh, I don't know if I answered the question, but there you go. No, I, I think that you have. I mean, I, when you started to relearn who you were, mm-hmm. did you feel like part of that was also that there were obstacles in your past that, that you hadn't done the work on, that you hadn't pulled out a jackhammer? Because I, I think that for all of us, we, you know, people say kids are resilient. I always say they're not resilient it's delayed, you know, um, it's a pain that you get hit and you don't feel it for sometimes 10 or 15 years. And, you know, it's really hard to go to the shed, pull out a jackhammer and decide I need to dig up this concrete. I got to get a wheelbarrow. I'm going to have to jack it up. I'm going to put it in the wheelbarrow, take it out to the dump and I'm going to have to lay concrete all over again. 
that's hard to do. And I'm just wondering if that was part of your process where you had to go back and kind of restart. Yeah, for sure. Um, You know, there's things that we all have things in our past uh, that, that, you know, kind of form us. I, I had a, in high school, uh, my first girlfriend, my only girlfriend in high school is black and she's a good friend of my, one of my teammates and, um, people didn't like that. And, you know, we were kind of told to, for lack of a better term to hide. And then I got to college and she came to UK as well and got here and took to school and we thought, well, we're in college, you know, this, this shouldn't matter. You know, we thought we'll, we'll go to class together, sit together classes that that we have together and be more out and open. People didn't fucking like that at all. And so I was kind of, while I was trying to be a really good player, do everything that, that the school was asking, get my books, all of that. I was also, negotiate negotiating people that didn't want me to to publicly have a black girlfriend and um that was stuff that i think i i dealt with at the time but didn't really i just kind of did what they asked me to do and uh, just so i had never dealt with any of that and that was something I had to really dive into and cause really, and truly all I needed, uh, almost makes me want to cry. All I needed was an ally, a grown up, mm-hmm. one fucking grown up to say, this is okay. Yeah. To say, Hey man. And I did have one actually one coach, but he was mm-hmm. a black coach and that wasn't the same. Um, I needed, I needed a friend. I needed someone who was like, Hey man, you, <laughs> I think I, I think I started resenting. Look, you guys are taking up all my time. I got to go to study hall. I got to play basketball. I got to do all this. You can't also tell me who I can date that. And I don't think I could have even articulated that at the time. Right. But that's probably what I was yeah, I feeling. I can only imagine. It must feel like the world coming down on you. And you're just a kid. It did. You know, you're just hanging with the girl you dig. And it's just like, what is, yeah. what is the malfunction? That ever, What's the right, problem? What is, the, the, what is yeah. the fucking deal here? Exactly. It, it really, when I think about it, it was, oh, it was ugly. It was ugly to yeah. me. It was mean, mean to her. Right. And she and I, we're still good right. friends. Uh, she lives in Cincinnati. We, we're, we're buddies still. But um, yeah, it was really hard to negotiate all that. And I think I didn't. And I think I had so many unresolved issues. I never really even talked about it much. Um, but as I started talking about it in therapy, you know, other things come up, you know. And, and if you don't do that work, and it's painful. And it's also why I when you asked me to do this, I know now this kind of, I, I can go do a basketball pod any day. This is therapeutic for me. And it's, it's, it's hard. <laughs> it's hard to talk about some of it. It's embarrassing uh, some of it, but you know, it, it, I think it does help, you know, it, 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 it can help somebody to hear something that, you know, they could be experiencing very similar yeah of course i I think it's probably one of the reasons why you've become such a sensation on twitter because it's not there's something else coming through it's just not a funny video or a moving video there's something about your personality people are attracted to authenticity people are attracted to someone who can confront the truth and say this is who i am and, you know, it's, it's interesting. People are very, uh, you know, attracted to what you're doing on social media. I told Perry when I first discovered your Twitter feed, it was because of Perry. And, and I said, God, this guy is like disinfecting the internet. <laughs> uh, you know, nice. with, you know yeah. and it was just a really, it's a really cool thing. So 
tell us how that happened. <clears throat> how did you yeah. get on Twitter and what, how did it become this thing? I mean, you have a million people following you over yeah. a million. Well, you know, it's funny you say that disinfecting thing, uh, you know, Jen Psaki, the new yeah. white house oh, yeah. press secretary. Press secretary. Yeah. I was happened to be listening to a, a David Fluff podcast one day and she was on there and he asked her, this was during the, during the campaign, uh, four months, five months ago, maybe. And, uh, he asked her, you know, well, social media wise, what are you guys, you know, trying to do? Um, you know, is there anybody out there that you sort of look at? And she said, well, uh, there's this Rex Chapman has an, has a, a Twitter channel and it's, it's kind of the soul of the internet. And I went, what, what the hell is going on here? So that's, that's real nice of you to say how it came about. I wanted off of social media about three years ago, Trump and the racism and all the crap had me so down. It was so toxic. And just really one day I, I saw a video of a school of dolphins swimming into shore and a guy paddle boarding out. And, um, one of the dolphins just jumped up, hit him dead in the chest and knocked him off the paddleboard. And I said to myself aloud, that's a fucking charge. <laughs> and, and, and so, uh, I, I just tweeted that out, you know, of course you're only thinking you're going to reach basketball people with that. And people kind of liked it and that sort of took off and that made it easy. I didn't have to talk about anything, just put out a stupid video every now and then. And that's just kind of how it came about. And then, look, you can only hit people over the head with people getting hurt so often it becomes white noise or talk only politics or do only one thing. So over time, I just started trying to sprinkle in some feel good videos. Um, Everybody loves dogs. You know, I put out dog videos and, you know, it, it it's a lot. It's a lot. Twitter is a lot less expensive than going to the racetrack. <laughs> well, you know, it's, you know, but it's important that the stuff is out there. You know, you, you, you said that three, four years ago, you were getting fed up with the politics and how toxic the environment yeah. is. Well, everybody over the past several years has felt that toxicity. You know, yeah. it's it, the country has felt meaner in recent yes. years. Yeah. It has just felt meaner and yeah. we can get into different people might have different perspectives on why that is, mm-hmm. but the country has felt meaner. And I think about your, your Twitter feed in the same vein that I think about the popularity of shows like Ted Lasso. Oh, you know, the best, right. People are thirsty for kindness. Yeah. Yeah. I think they're you're lo- right. They're looking for something good. And so it doesn't surprise me at all that you've, you really have this personal brand of kindness that, that people have, have gravitated well, to. It's see, and, that, and that's, that's a bit, see, I hear you, what you're saying and I appreciate you saying it. I'm, I'm not that happy guy though. I'm trying to fake my way through it. It's helping me as much right. as anything, anybody else. I'm like when, if my buddies, my high school buddies, if they're all sitting in here right now and they hear you guys say, or they hear anybody say, oh, Mr. Feelgood or whatever. They'll just start uh-huh. cracking up. <laughs> oh, yeah, Mr. Feelgood. Sure. Right. This asshole. So, yeah. Um, but I'm trying to fake my way through it just like everybody else. But here's what I would say. You know, I feel like social media is um, that young athlete who suddenly has a lot of fame. It's young. Social media is. And it doesn't really understand its power. It's not really clear on what its priorities should be if you were to yeah. make it a person, right? Yeah. And um, it doesn't know where to go. And what I would say to you is, um, you know, we had this woman on last week, Gabrielle Bluestone. And um, she covered the fire Festival and she really, really dug down on social media. And we asked her, how did working on this change you and she said it changed my entire relationship with social media because i stopped following influencers and i started to follow things that made me feel better right right. and i'm not putting this on you and i'm not putting this on her i think that we're all looking for what you were looking for when you were at uk which was a mentor yeah 
And I think that you and Gabrielle and people like that were trying to find some mentors on, okay, how do I wield this yeah. thing of social media and not come away feeling worse about myself? And right. it's not to claim that the mentor has all the answers or that mm-hmm. the mentor is solving it for people, but at least it's a guide that you can engage in this stuff and feel better about what humanity can mean. And I think that, you know, uh, Ed, Ed, Ed and my, you know, my wife and you know, all of our friends, Ed's wife, we all are on the string and they're all sick and tired of me forwarding videos you send but they're so freaking good and 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 your your um place in uh, it's our, it's called the rebel alliance our little string okay uh-huh. and uh your place in our string went up because you recently you recently replaced your photo with the photo of prince yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. Okay. I already yeah. liked him. Now yeah. he's it's Rex been, actually, is, actually that's been up there forever since I had the Twitter thing. It's only been up there. It's, I did not yeah. know that. It, it yeah, is. That's my guy. It, that's why I wore the number three too. He wore the number three and on his basketball team. Okay. Now, uh, now you guys are really, you don't understand. No, you don't, you don't understand. I've seen 26 times in concert. I he's went the to only thing. I'd never saw him in, in concert, but went to the Glam Slam with him once in Minneapolis after a ball game. Wow. Yeah. He was a basketball so, fan. Oh, it, I, and I, don't, I barely remember much of the night. It was Kenny, Kenny Walker and I. We left after the game. We were going to go with Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, who had courtside seats there uh, for years, and got in the limo at the Target Center after the game, and that little dude was in the limo. And I just froze. It was like the biggest – and I'd already met Muhammad Ali by then. This freaked me out. I just think that you, um, you're, you're putting stuff out there, and it is broad. And I think what I'm interested in is that, yes, it makes you feel good. But you have a take. You have a stand. And your push for equality and inclusion is clear. And you took a political stance. Um, you know, you're, um, you supported Amy McGrath and her, you did an ad for her, which yeah. I've seen, which by the yeah. way, you still have your shot. Um, <laughs> talk about that is, is part of this and your journey realizing that the best version of you yeah. is just your authentic self and to live with the consequences, not worry about them, not get up in your own head about it, but yeah. just to be you. It was. And when I went to rehab and I was at my bottom several years ago, I got it into this place. They put me in my room and I like, I can remember sitting there. There's no TV. It's like a dorm room and just going. And I exhaled and it was like, finally, everyone knows that I am a phony in my mind that now the pressure's off. I'm not this Mr. All-American kid that's, you know, mcdonald's all american uh, on the magazines and stuff like that in a sense it was like the pressure was off and from that moment you know you really have no clue but to be i uh, or no choice but to be you know open and honest about it i mean i guess i could not be open about it but i want to try to help because i know how lonely you know shit can be when you're at your at your worst um, so, yeah, I want to try the, the thing about the Twitter, I think, that has been over the last year or two with the pandemic, especially I've noticed that there are so many people who I know uh, that I don't really know, but I know of their careers that it this stupid channel has become sort of a little safe haven for like minded people to come and. You know, I don't know Katie Fang or Soledad O'Brien or Nancy Pelosi or Chelsea Clinton or anybody. I don't know any of those people, but they all follow this silly account. And um, you're able to kind of come come into this space and, you know, maybe not so feel feel so shitty when you <laughs> when you leave it. Yeah, I, it's it's a it's a win. It's it's a we're in it together type. Thing. Yeah, right. Yeah. And I think that that's that's what we're all hungering for specifically when we're at this intersection of starting to have some conversations that are 
long overdue mm-hmm. about our bad history right. with race in this right. country and, and, and honestly with inclusion overall. And I think that that's what I love about what you're doing is that you're letting people know when you come to this square, mm-hmm. it's um, this town square, there's a lot of joy here because we're all trying to figure it out together and we don't have right. the answers. Right. Yeah. I don't, you know, I really don't mess with, you know, you can imagine you do a, uh, an ad for Amy McGrath and Mitch McConnell state that doesn't go over real well. Also fuck that guy. I, I was set 16 years old and we had, he was a, uh, had been elected. I was 16 when he was elected to the, to the Senate at Apollo high school. And we had a, had a mandatory assembly. This guy, the new Senator was going to fly in from Frankfort, Kentucky to our high school land on the football field. And we were all to go out and greet him. So we all had to do that. And as I'm out there, I'm watching, I'm looking and he exits the helicopter and his little handler behind him had his briefcase with a Confederate sticker on it. And I turned around walked back into school past the teachers and said, man, fuck this guy and went inside. And I ended up getting, once the assembly was over, I got three days of detention for it. But from that point, I, you know, I knew who he was and, and he's shown to be that person over the last 40 fucking years. So when people are upset about me doing a, uh, and plus I'm doing the, the ad for Amy and it's all about opioids. It's all about opioids. So if you want to get pissed off at me for that, good. You're the asshole. Right. Right. That's exactly (laughs) right. That's exactly right. No, I was going to ask you how you respond to people who, you know, say that athletes shouldn't be speaking out on issues or or involving themselves in politics. And I think you just answered it by saying, well, fuck you. You're you're the asshole. That's right. That's right. Come on. What what gives you the right to, you know, say what you want to say? Exactly. Well, we're all people here. Exactly. <laughs> what, what's, what, what difference does it make? What profession? Yeah. You just don't like what I'm saying. That's right. Yeah. It, That's right. People feel, yeah. And they feel like they're being told on, right. you know, these, these racists for the most part. Well, it's, I, not, it's not, that's not that what we're saying is untrue. It's just that we're saying it. I think that you are just massively courageous. And again, I think you've combined that with kindness and, um, and love. And, and, and what I'd love to understand is what you're hoping to get out of your podcast, the Rex Chapman show. Is it to have that discussion? Is it a basketball podcast? You know, cause I know you've had Shaquille on what, what do you, we, what do you want to accomplish? You know, really, I just want to, I want people to be able to come there on this pod with Josh and just spend 45 minutes to an hour and get, get lost a little bit and feel good type stuff. Interesting people, you know, we've had on, I think we, we just taped yesterday. It'll drop tomorrow. We just taped Stephen Curry. So we're going to, oh, and I just wish he was playing a little better right I now. I know. By the way, that but, left-handed three-pointer may be the best right? three-pointer I've ever seen. Incredible. So, you know, it's more of a basketball podcast, but we also had on recently uh, Jane Lynch and Andy Richter and Mary Trump's coming on soon. So, you know, I want to keep it different. I, I want to interview people that I find really fascinating and, yeah. um, you know, try to get, just hear something that you might not, that you might not hear. I'm doing another pod though. And that'll come out uh, a little later this month, maybe early next month. And I'm really excited about it. It's, it's called, it's going to be called charges and it's about athletes the first episode will be with uh, Ron Artest, Meta World Peace, athletes who've gotten in trouble. Um, and, you know, basically, I want to hear about, we'll hear about, you know, what happened at the palace that, that day and what was going on in his life during that time and hear it from his perspective. Basically, you're never as bad as your worst day if you learn from it. Yeah, and true. so we've got really exciting guys lined up uh, that I'm just able to sit and talk to. And um, I'm really excited about that one because it's a little different. That's fantastic. Are you doing, yeah. are, you have a co-host for that one? No, just me and me and the guest. So great. Rex, I, I honestly can't say enough good things about you. I think uh, that thanks, for buddy. all of us, you know, you don't, 
I think that I, I was 40 before I started to figure out anything that was really happening in life. And I had a model that I had chosen, that I take responsibility for mm-hmm. as an adult, which was my dad. Um, and, uh, you know, my dad wasn't the best of guys. Uh, again, I own that. And right. um, I don't put any of that on him. Yeah. Um, but um, uh, to be 40 and to realize you got to go back and dig up all the concrete yeah. is embarrassing. Yes, it is. But, right. But it's but it's critical. And I think that the more that you can let people know, yeah, I, too, had to go do that work. Yeah. I think the more people feel not so alone. And when they don't feel alone, they then feel like they can have a conversation about it. Agreed. Agreed. Important so I, stuff. I you just guys appreciate you. Thanks, buddy. I appreciate you. Thank keep you, guys. Keep, keep disinfecting the internet. I'll try. I'll try. <laughs> so this is The Head and the Heart. You can listen to us on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Podcast One. And follow us on Twitter, at head underscore heart underscore pod and definitely follow rex chapman on twitter he's at rex chapman you will love it and this podcast has been produced by casey morris thanks for listening hey.